Hello and welcome to the Eye-Catching Words podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've listened before, welcome back. This week, the woke older bloke is looking at the week in view with, inevitably, an analysis of the local election results. Ruminating at surprising length on the coronation, making a case for using 10th of September this year to reboot our relationship with Europe, and frantically twiddling the Rubik Cube of artificial intelligence to try and make sense of it. But before kicking off in earnest, just to remind you that my latest audio short story has just been published. The skeleton in the cupboard takes a comical, supernatural and serious look at the imperial legacy of our newly crowned king. It's 35 minutes long, free to listen to, and is brilliantly narrated by the excellent Tom Daplin. When you finish this week's podcast whilst cleaning, make a cuppa and sit down and relax with it and listen to it properly. So let's kick off with the weekly rear view mirror. My week started with a stone setting ceremony in the new Jewish cemetery in London. This was for my wife's uncle who died in December 2021. It was a moving experience because of its simplicity and the number of connections involved and also because of the discovery of a surprising fragment of wisdom that I, as a non-believer, took away from the prayer book. It goes like this. The day is short, the task is great. It is not your duty to finish the work, but neither is it your duty to neglect it. In short, every day brings unfinished business. That is no reason not to strive to do good things. Stone settings are a part of the healing process in the Jewish religion and normally take place a year or so after the funeral itself. They are generally low on ceremony and followed by a gathering. This one was held in a kosher cafe which did fabulous falafel just for the vegans who couldn't eat the smoked salmon, cream cheese and other traditional Sunday afternoon tea food. It was fresh fried, crispy on the outside and soft and fragrant on the inside. If you've never had real falafel, you don't know what you're missing. The rest of my week was uneventful, although dominated by some rather stressful work events and my annual meeting with the gastroenterologist who oversees my long-term condition. This was rather amusing as we spent about three minutes talking about my bowels and a good quarter of an hour discussing the shortcomings of her new computer system. Knowing that I occasionally sit around the same table as senior people, including her own chief executive, she seemed to think I might be able to do something about it. Alas, my influence is in inverse proportion to the seating arrangements. I may sit next to the CEO at our board meetings, but my role is governance and I have no more influence than the toilet cleaners when it comes to big decisions. Newswise, seeing a Conservative government taking a hammering in the polls is rarely a moment of sadness in my life. But I felt oddly uninspired and unimpressed on Thursday and Friday as it became clear that Sunak and co were going to get a pasting. Firstly, it doesn't really offer us a way out of the woods. There are no alternative solutions or strategies coming out of Labour and the Lib Dems that signal a way of restoring living standards, addressing inequalities, rebuilding our relationships with Europe and creating a more positive and just culture. Secondly, it is still 18 months to the next general election. We face the real prospect of extreme partisan politics ahead of the polls at a time when our leaders should be trying to give us answers, not rhetoric. 
And lastly, I hear no one talking about reforming and fixing our broken democratic systems. If the last 10 years have taught us anything, it is that we can't problem solve as a nation because we are at each other's throats when we should be brokering consensus on big issues such as health, education and inequalities. So no, I wasn't particularly happy. On the periphery of the coronation, I was shocked at the totally inappropriate level of arrests and harassment of people who did not support the monarchy and chose to do it with a few cardboard signs and t-shirts. This is Braverman's Britain, a proto-police state, if we are not careful, where the boys in blue can make arbitrary judgments about who gets locked up and who doesn't. The Conservative Party Deputy Chair, Lee Anderson, a man who gives bigots a bad name, said that if they didn't like it, they should go live somewhere else. Watch this space carefully. You could be next if you wander past a police station wearing a Father Ted t-shirt that says, down with this kind of thing. They can now nick you with impunity. So let's talk about that coronation thing and ask ourselves the question, is Charles an evolutionary monarch? Watching the coronation as someone who does not believe in the monarchy was intriguing. My thought processes and my reactions went at it like balls in a pinball machine, ironic given that the event itself was slow, repetitive and ponderous. What astonished me most was that I enjoyed it. But then I shouldn't be surprised, it was full of history, symbolism and contemporary relevance and a few things to annoy as well. Dull, it most certainly was not. Even when pomp and ceremony come to the fore, I find it difficult to get worked up about our royal family these days. There are so many other things to get angry about and in its own way today illustrated one of them perfectly. And that was with the walk of shame that was our last less than magnificent seven former prime ministers. In they marched in their various stages of age and indignity. Liz Trust, wrecker of the British economy, was smiling self-deludedly as if her disastrous short term of office must have been forgotten by the watching TV audience. Boris Johnson, liar and playboy and architect of Brexit, was looking large and self-consciously Churchillian, his ego protruding out in front of him. No doubt the pair of them both think they can make a comeback one day, such is their arrogance and self-denial. Then there was Theresa May, who sent vans out on the streets and poisoned our culture against all immigrants, legal or otherwise. David Cameron, who with George Osborne and Nick Clegg, wrote and implemented the austerity playbook that killed the hopes of a generation. And Tony Blair, liquor of the American arsehole, who took us to war on the basis of a pack of lies. Major and Brown I have no particular gripe with, other than that they were ineffectual as leaders. But in total, the parade of former PMs stretching back to 1991 was a miserable affair. It made me realise what a downward path this country has been on for a very long time. Blair's time in particular fills me with renewed ire, as I've come to realise recently that it was his style of unaccountable government that created the conditions that allowed so many things to go wrong after 2010. The other thing that made me angry was that the coronation showed the British class divide at its worst. Apart from a few tokens of commonality such as ant and deck, 
the audience inside Westminster Abbey was nothing like the sort of people you and I mix with in real life. This was the worst of Britain on public display. The possessors of vast inherited wealth, the well-connected industrialists, the men groomed on the playing fields of Eton, the Oxbridge elite, the church elders, the shareholding classes. These are the people that actually prefer to be invisible most of the time, who in most cases would rather live out their lives where we can never see them, in expensive restaurants, in clubs we've never heard of, at events that most of us cannot afford, and in each other's vast houses and gardens. Today they were reluctantly brought together in one place, and the coronation did us the great service of reminding us that they exist to the detriment of the rest of us. These are the upper echelons of the 10% of the country's population that own over half its total wealth. These are the people who own the things that twist our society out of shape, the land, the companies and the media outlets. These are the people who create false flag culture wars to divert attention from themselves while they fly off for the weekend in, in executive jets. And yet, I was struck by the sheer beauty of the music, in particular the singing. It was entrancing, so passionately delivered, so enthusiastically directed. We are masters of choral music in this country and the choirs today were outstanding and performed seemingly effortlessly. Alleluia, as performed by the Ascension Choir, was simply breathtaking and brought a very different tone to the proceedings, giving a power to the pomp that it would otherwise have lacked. The ceremony itself could have been made into one of those books, The History of the Monarchy in a Hundred Objects. The Golden Spurs, first used at the coronation of Charles II, the gem-encrusted swords glistening in the light of the Abbey, the screens that were used to surround Charles when he was given his vegan oiling, sorry, anointing. Rings, girdles, shawls and crowns, each with their own history and symbolism. If you can be fascinated with the objects without being seduced by their connotations, what is not to like? Although I did wonder at one moment whether they were going to pull out the one ring to rule them all and ask Charles to go and deliver it to Mount Doom. Then there was the role of the women. We had female bishops officiating, something that would not have happened even ten years ago. We had women in every part of the ceremonial, usually looking more confident and relaxed than their male counterparts. And Penny Mordaunt with that strange collection of personality traits that makes her difficult to completely dislike. Despite her being a Brexiteer and an endorser of Liz Trust, performed her leading role with enormous grace, strength and gravitas. And then there was the armed forces, again with their music, their exquisite timing, the incredible logistics. The procession was staggering in its complexity and delivery. Afterwards, on the lawn of Buckingham Palace, there were three cheers for the newly crowned couple that were delivered so crisply and loudly that it was like listening to triple explosions. You did find yourself wondering why our country is capable of delivering such a well-managed spectacle as this when it is in disarray in so many other ways. At the centre of it all was the King himself, a man who I thought looked slightly overwhelmed, tired and having to work hard to remain calm. He did not falter, but I could not help thinking that in many ways it was a shame that he was not given his opportunity ten years earlier. Apart from anything else, he does seem to be more egalitarian and committed to tolerance and diversity than his mother. There were so many faiths involved, so many black people in senior roles, 
that you can't help thinking that he could have had a positive impact on British life and culture and maybe just maybe tip the scales in favour of tolerance back in 2016 when this country voted disastrously to demonstrate its narrowness of vision. There are huge problems with our monarchy. They represent many things that I resent. Inherited wealth, defence of privilege, their remoteness from ordinary people. But I don't think, after the disasters of the 21st century to date, that we should make their abolition or their reform our priority. Instead, we should let Charles III help to shine a light on a better side of Britain at what is a critical time for our country. He is, like me, a grumpy but woke older bloke. If he can encourage the people and the politicians to show that better side, it will have an impact. We need more days when we can show as a nation that we can care, have tolerance, put women in leadership roles, have singers lifting our hearts, black people at the centre of events, and can show the discipline that goes with deeply grounded tradition. We just need those days to be led by and done for the benefit of the people rather than the monarchy. If Charles can facilitate that in what will inevitably a short reign, he could be forgiven by history for being a symbol of outdated privilege. The referendum vote on Britain's continued membership of the EU took place on the 23rd of June 2016. But it wasn't until midnight on the 31st of January 2020 that we finally cut our ties. That's a total of 1,317 days spent in bitterness, argument, turmoil and chaos. For those who still wanted to leave come 2020, it was at last a victory. For those of us who wanted passionately to remain, it was heartbreaking. On that last evening, I was pub crawling around London with my eldest son, who had voted leave. We were therefore an odd couple on the streets that night. He had cast his vote not out of racism or ill-informed prejudice, but for reasons which would have chimed with one of his heroes, Tony Benn. For him, Europe, as represented by the EU, was part of a wider problem, along with international corporations and other social structures that, in his view, were treating ordinary people as lab rats and slowly eroding all that was good in the traditions of each individual country. We had argued it out over the three and a half years in a way that allowed our love to live alongside our difference of opinion. So we ended up in Westminster mid-evening, where there were crowds of thuggish, fat, Union Jack-clad men mingling with the general population. A few individuals were dressed comically and floridly, or had faces painted with the cross of St George. There were banners and flags, but actually the crowds were thinner than I expected. It certainly did not feel big, well organised, or even particularly triumphant. We went to a pub called The Feathers, with which I have a long history. It is a typical wood-panelled London boozer, unremarkable but fairly large. My first marriage, over 35 years earlier, had seen us partying in an upstairs room. Tonight was, for me, on this occasion, awake, and I was also feeling a little bit bolshy. So when we found a seat and my son went off to the bar, I took off my jacket and my jumper to display my I am a European and always will be t-shirt in the hope that I could at least enjoy a good argument with someone before the witching hour. Nothing happened. 
A couple of seedy-looking Union jacked-up middle-aged men with beer bellies were, with the typical irony of the leave voter drinking French lager, advertised through Stella Artois glasses. Nonetheless, they sneered at me and started talking loudly for my benefit about how great it was to be finally leaving the EU. My son came back with our pints of English bitter, laughed at my t-shirt and told me I was a plonker for being so provocative. What happened next is best illustrated by quoting directly from my journal for that evening. The pub was full of Union Jack carrying Brexiteers heading off to the celebrations for Brexit, which was totally like watching turkeys decorating a Christmas tree. Fortunately for us, we were approached by a lovely German couple who liked my I am still a European t-shirt and who completely ruined my plans for a dignified exit from Europe. Several beers and more whiskies later, I staggered out of the pub and hailed a taxi to Waterloo, leaving my son extolling the virtues of Charlemagne to our bemused fellow Europeans. I was in a taxi when we formally departed the EU and didn't give a fuck. Brexit is bollocks, people are people, beer is beer, we shall overcome, etc. So that was the 31st of January 2020, 1,317 days after the momentous vote. Boris Johnson had been elected PM and the first whispers of the Covid pandemic that was yet to come were being reported. We all know how the next three years panned out, both as tragedy and as farce. Fast forward to the present day. It seems incredible that nearly seven years have elapsed. I thought about those 1,317 days of torment and did the math. 1,317 days from the 1st of February 2020 would take us to 10th of September this year. That, to my mind, seems as good a time as any to start the process of picking ourselves off the floor as a country. Brexit has lost all credibility. The economy is in tatters, not least because leaving the EU robbed us of so much of the resilience that we might have had from still being in it. That would have helped us to cope with the pandemic, the subsequent war in the Ukraine, and everything that flowed from that. Instead, we are seeing the long tail continued loss of business and damage to the economy that distancing ourselves from our closest trading partners has brought with it. If 31st of January 2020 formally marked our decline after 1,307 days in hell, maybe on the 10th of September 2023, we could take that same number and start to demand an upward trajectory. One of the issues we now have is that despite Brexit's total loss of credibility and despite the complete discrediting of the right-wing movements and individuals that engineered it, respectable politicians are still failing to be brave enough to say what most of us will readily acknowledge. It was a con, it was a deceit, and the last seven years have been a mess, a triumph of egos over common sense. Our leaders across the whole political spectrum need to start standing up and saying so and stop being coy. The Leave movement never had a problem standing up for what it believed in. It lied and beguiled and manoeuvred, but it was never shy. Now we need someone with courage to start the journey to taking us back to normality. I'm not asking for anyone to stand up and say Brexit was wrong and we need to rejoin the EU as soon as possible. I simply want people like Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak to grow some, as they say, and take on the right-wingers who do not speak for the majority of the population by saying, this isn't working. We need to start trading with Europe again. We need to reforge our cultural links. 
We need common sense arrangements that will give us back access to European markets, research funding and normal travel arrangements. No one has to sloganise, they just have to advocate for letting Britain do what it has done best in the past. Be involved with Europe and respected by it, not disconnected from it. So let's start a new movement that marks 1,317 days beyond that fateful day of 31st of January 2020, the 10th of September movement. A day when we start to move forward again, not in a way that revisits and reopens old wounds, but in a way that says we are undeniably Europeans and always will be. AI stories are flooding the news. In fact, they're hard to keep up with and I'm increasingly finding it difficult to know where to start and what to talk about. A simple scan of the news throws up the following, which I've tried to give plus or minus scores to. The Secretary of State for Education says AI could take the strain when it comes to marking homework. Fair enough, actually. What would you rather a teacher was doing, sweating over essays late at night or teaching, mentoring and counselling children? Score plus one, with the caveat that teachers do need a fair pay award first. Next up is Geoffrey Hinton, the godfather of AI, who has resigned from Google and is publicly saying, we're all doomed, probably. Now that is interesting, as it is the Frankenstein phenomenon. The man who helped put together the monster is now saying it is going to be bad for us. But underlying it all is a timing issue. He's always argued that the monster was going to sit bolt upright and scare the shit out of us one day, but he thought that day was 40 or 50 years into the future. There is now a creeping view that AI's progress is exponential, and within the decade we will be screwed unless governments get their head around this, which they probably won't. In fact, as reported last week, they will probably start using AI to compete rather than regulate. Score minus one. Jürgen Schmidhuber, another one of AI's father figures, AI seems to have a lot of father figures, is however optimistic and believes AI will advance to the point where it surpasses human intelligence without actually having the desire or opportunity to kill us all off, while humans will continue to benefit and use the tools developed by AI. So in other words, we'll end up as second-class citizens in a tech universe that is surprisingly uninterested in us, score nothing either way. However, there is a generally held view that thinking, analytical and creative skills are the ones actually most at risk from AI at the moment. At least one entrepreneur of my acquaintance in a small but successful IT company is planning to lay off several people because AI can do their work better. Now, I'm pretty certain that this is not an isolated example. In fact, the Hollywood Screenwriters Guild strike is partly about use of AI, which they are demanding a ban on. So we are already seeing AI having an impact on industrial relations. Score minus one. On the battlefield, the big preoccupation seems not to be AI itself, but old fashioned issues with getting the data to where it is needed. You can't blow up the enemy if the drone can't get the information back to the AI that is going to be working out the strike coordinates. The military equivalent of your call is very important to us. Please call back later. Maybe this is a good thing, but you have to remember that the military don't tend to let hurdles like this hold them up for long. AI can already be used to sift through massive amounts of data 
and analyze it quickly to provide actionable intelligence for military commanders. This can include everything from satellite imagery to social media data. The big issue is autonomous weapons, also known as killer robots. These can select and engage targets without checking back with HQ first. That sounds really dodgy to me. Score minus three. Lastly, this week, The Guardian did a report on the fake news websites that are springing up. This actually cheered me up, as they sound so far-fetched and stupid that the only people who would read them would be people who already believe that Donald Trump is a good guy and that Bill Gates is injecting us all with microchips. One of these fake news sites reported last week that Joe Biden had died peacefully in his sleep at the same time he was taking selfies in an Irish pub doorway. Score plus one just for giving us all a good laugh. On balance, we end up with a minor score from reading that lot, but don't take this too seriously. There are literally dozens of AI news stories coming out from reputable news sources every day. The issue is that even the experts disagree about the opinions being expressed. Hinton and Schmidhuber, for instance, have been engaged in slanging matches that wouldn't be out in place in PMQs. For the moment, we just need to educate ourselves and hope that whatever an AI world of the future looks like, it can't be much more dystopian than the one we have at the moment. Next week, I'm going to be looking at AI and TV in the movies from the day the Earth stood still to Eagle Eye via early episodes of Star Trek. Humanity has been replacing God with machines and scaring the pants off of his and herself in the process. Catch the countdown to oblivion as seen by Hollywood here. That's all from me this week, just to say that from here on in I will be publishing on a Tuesday rather than a Monday, as this fits better with my work-life balance. Also, and as usual, don't forget to check out eyecatchingwords.blog, where you will see new articles based on these podcasts, new content, occasional funnies and flypasts, and pointers for where to go next. Remember, Eyecatching Words is not monetized, not written by an AI, well, maybe just a little bit, and wants to be your friend in an increasingly unfriendly world. Klaatu Barada Nikto, as Michael Rennie said way back in 1951. See you next week.